0: It's the Code St. Luke Podcast for Thursday, November 5, 2020. On today's episode, the Code St. Luke Public Library's Stephen Tomlinson is here. Stephen's going to be speaking about the life and career of Sean Connery, who passed away this week. As a kid growing up, my first uh, memory or my first instance of seeing Sean Connery was having this vague notion he was this other Bond that would sometimes appear on on TV, on ABC, Usually Sunday nights. You know, I grew up watching Roger Moore as James Bond, so this other James Bond was just odd to me. You know, he had a hairier chest. He wasn't quite as uh, suave and sophisticated. In my idea, he was not the real Bond. Sean, uh, Roger Moore, rather, was the, the real Bond. Through the 1980s, however, and uh, Stephen talks about this, Sean Connery started appearing in a number of movies, in supporting roles and uh, starring roles, The Hunt for Red October, The Untouchables, which were right up my alley. They were the kinds of movies that I loved. I still, uh, to this day, if The Untouchables comes on TV, I will stop what I'm doing and I will watch it. It's just one of those kinds of movies. Uh, then he appears in Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade as the father of Indiana Jones. I was thinking back uh, this week when I heard the news of his passing to his movies, and I realized there are so many lines from his movies, which I will still quote to this day. I still love saying, you're playing both sides. There's a movie from 2000 called Finding Forrester where he delivers this line, You're the man now, dog. Uh, and it's such a, a funny line coming from sort of an older Scottish man. And it just became this meme on the internet. And, you know, one of my favorite uh, Sean Connery movies of all, apart from The Untouchables, is The Hunt for Red October, where he plays the Soviet submarine captain who is seemingly wanting to defect to the United States and he needs to he needs to bring his submarine to U.S. waters so he can safely defect and hopefully from his perspective give the Americans the submarine. I won't say more about this because Stephen has a much more detailed and a much better talk coming your way. I really encourage you to listen to it. Uh, it's a really great overview of uh, his life and of his career and his movies. Here is Stephen Stephen Tomlinson
1: Hi, everyone. The name's Tomlinson, Stephen Tomlinson, of the Cote St. Luke Public Library. Last Saturday, the charismatic and much-celebrated Scottish actor and movie star Sean Connery passed away at the age of 90. He was best known for his iconic portrayal of the sexy and sophisticated secret agent James Bond in seven films beginning in 1962 with Dr. No a role that launched him into international superstardom. And at one time in the mid-1960s, at the height of Bond mania, yes, that was a thing, he might have been the most popular actor in the entire world. But of course, that's not all that he was. And after abandoning the role, one of a number of times he would do so, he went on to forge an Oscar-winning career, playing a variety of leading and character parts, well into his 70s. Never out of fashion, Connery was an audience favorite for more than 40 years. His death was announced by his family, who said that the actor died peacefully in his sleep at his home in the Bahamas. The cause of his death has not been disclosed, but it's believed he had been unwell for some time and that he had been suffering from dementia. Thomas Sean Connery was born of Irish ancestry on August 25th 1930, in the tough, working-class Fountainbridge area of Edinburgh, Scotland, the first of two sons of a long-distance truck driver and a domestic worker. To help support his family, he left school at age 13 during World War II to work as an unskilled labourer. I was a milkman, steel bender, cement mixer, virtually anything, he once said. Known to his friends and family as either Tommy, or Big Tam, he eventually wearied of such work with very few prospects and joined the British Navy at age 17 in 1948, but was medically discharged after three years. The reason? Stomach ulcers, which had affected most of the males from previous generations of his family. Nevertheless, by the age of 18, he had grown to his full height of six feet two inches, and also acquired two permanent tattoos Mum and Dad and Scotland Forever. <laughs> he would, in fact, become a lifelong supporter of Scottish independence. At about the same time Connery joined the Navy, he began bodybuilding and would afterwards, back in Edinburgh, get work both as a lifeguard and as a model for artists before entering the Mr. Universe contest in 1953, though he did not win. Artist Richard DeMarco, at the time a student who painted several early pictures of Connery, described him as, and I quote here, very straight, slightly shy, too, too beautiful for words, a virtual Adonis, end quote. Connery also played soccer and briefly considered becoming a professional player after receiving interest to do so by the Manchester United Soccer Club, but decided to pursue an acting career instead because he reasoned that such a thing would last longer. Now, having decided to become an actor soon after moving to London and with big plans for himself, he was told that Thomas Sean Connery just wouldn't fit on a theatre marquee, so he dropped his first name. In 1954, he got his first break after learning of an opening in the chorus of South Pacific, believe it or not, and then took a crash course in singing and dancing, and surprisingly landed the role, in which he stayed for 18 months. He was hooked, he said, on acting, but spent several years paying his dues in small repertory companies, in and around London, before anyone else became hooked on him, he recalled. At around the same time, Connery developed a serious interest in the theatre and read widely in its canonical works, as well as much of world literature. He also took elocution lessons to improve his professional prospects. So the the idea of self-improvement was, in toto, very important to him and would certainly helped when it came to incarnate the worldly sophisticated James Bond. But of course, his acting career did not take off right away, though his hunky physique and handsome face seemed certainly to have been his main assets early on, first in small-time theatre and then in small roles in TV shows, such as Dixon of Doc Green, and even a special episode of the Jack Benny program that was being filmed in England. His first credited film role arrived in 1957, playing a hoodlum with a speech impediment in the British thriller No Road Back. However, it was a BBC version of Rod Serling's Requiem for a Heavyweight that provided his breakthrough lead performance as a boxer facing the end of his career in the ring. His profile increased as a result of that, with support roles following in the movies Hell Drivers, about corruption in the trucking industry and Action of the Tiger, an adventure film directed by Terence Young, with whom Connery would soon reunite for the James Bond movies. After such promising early work, Connery then landed his first substantial movie role in the wartime melodrama Another Time, Another Place, playing opposite Lana Turner, who was still a huge Hollywood star at the time. In a widely retold anecdote, he reportedly came to blows with Turner's lover, the notorious Los Angeles gangster Johnny Stompanato, after the latter suspected the two actors were having an affair. Supposedly what happened was that Stompanato had stormed onto the film set and pointed a gun at Connery, only to have Connery disarm him and knock him flat on his back. Now, from what we know, of his rough upbringing in Edinburgh, this was not Connery's first brush with real life violence. And if nothing else, he was certainly demonstrating in this early part of his career, a certain suitability in an eclectic array of roles, if always accompanied by a mostly one-dimensional macho persona. A trip to Hollywood in 1959 resulted in two further significant roles, both in Tarzan's Greatest Adventure, not as Tarzan himself, but playing one of the villains, and more importantly, as it would later transpire, as a charming, singing, wily Irishman in Disney's Darby O'Gill and the Little People, though contemporary reviews were not kind and mostly dismissed him as little more than tall, dark, and handsome, quote-unquote. Still, I think it's fair to say that in this latter role, uh, Darby O'Gill, Connery demonstrated a softer, more charming and charismatic side than he had previously shown in his predominantly beefcake performances. Another break of a kind came in 1961 when he received positive notices for ostensibly more serious work in a British television performance of Macbeth in which Connery played the titular character, and to even greater notice in another TV adaptation, this time as Count Vronsky, playing opposite Claire Bloom as Anna Karenina. In any case, viewing any of this today, even just clips, can be both a strange and funny experience, as Sean Connery seems, in retrospect of course, completely at odds with the cool, witty, and self-contained gentlemanly macho persona that the world would soon come to know him as, and which would continue to define his on-screen persona for the rest of his career. Then came the audition that changed his life. Movie producers Albert Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman the latter of whom was born in Cherbourg, Quebec, by the way, had bought the film rights to all but one of the contemporary Cold War spy adventure novels by Ian Fleming. Yet Connery was not their first choice. The producers had looked to Cary Grant, who had been Broccoli's best man at his wedding, but decided they wanted an actor who would commit to a series of movies. The producers also realized that they couldn't afford a big-name star because the United Artists had limited their budget for Dr. No, which would be shooting on location in Jamaica, and with a relatively paltry $1 million budget. So they started interviewing more obscure British performers. Among them was Sean Connery, and it was his part in Darby O'Gill and the Little People that helped him land the role of Bond. What happened was that Broccoli had asked his wife, Dana, to watch Connery in that Disney movie while he was searching for the right lead actor to play Bond. Dana Broccoli said her husband told her he was not sure Connery had the right sex appeal. She said, I saw that face and the way he moved and talked, and I said, Cubby, he's fabulous. He was just perfect. He had star material right there. So, Without a screen test, Broccoli and Saltzman chose the actor, citing his, and I quote here, dark, cruel, good looks, end quote. A perfect match for the way Fleming had described James Bond. And so by the time Dr. No premiered in October 1962, and at the age of 32, Connery's star was born. The film was a huge hit, not only in Britain, but it did well in the U.S. and in Canada too. Condemned as immoral by both the Vatican and the Kremlin, but screened at the White House. For Bond fan John F. Kennedy, Dr. No, of course, also led to Bond becoming a franchise that long outlasted its Cold War origins. In fact, The World Awaits, today the release of the 25th James Bond film. The $300 million budgeted No Time to Die, completed but long delayed for reasons because of COVID-19. Now, despite everything associated with the series, the fast cars, the deadly gadgets, the beautiful women, elegant clothes, outrageous stunts, larger-than-life villains, his license to kill, and vodka martinis, always shaken, not stirred. And almost 60 years later, Connery himself remains the single most important ingredient of them all. And so for better or worse, he would forever become associated with the role of James Bond. But that was something that certainly did not always sit well with him. Of course, obviously, it wasn't merely the dialogue that made Connery's 007 so compelling, or all the glamorous trappings that surrounded him. It's clear from the start that he possessed just the right amount of self-awareness and self-confidence, crucially, to deliver the memorable one-liners, but that he had also a certain panther-like unpredictability and urbane grace in equal measure to make the character come alive on screen. But that sense of sophistication, that didn't come naturally to him. He had to have had, he had to have worked at that. And he certainly learned much from his Dr. No director, Terrence Young, who taught him how to dress, how to dine, how to gamble, and with whom he would go on to make his further Bond films, or at least two further of the Bond films from Usher with Love in 1963 and Thunderball the most popular of them all in 1965, or at least the one that has made the most money. Um, inflation adjusted, of course. Um, well, Terrence Young had to teach him some of the finer things in life. Certainly no one had to teach Sean Connery the rough stuff. He could already handle himself in a bar fight. And so, Sean Connery became an instant, staggering success as James Bond by conveying exactly the right dangerous sexiness, visible elegance, and capacity for disciplined violence, along with a natural gift for wry humour. Bond creator Ian Fleming himself was sufficiently impressed by Connery, despite initial reservations, to fabricate Scottish roots for Bond in subsequent books before Fleming's premature death in 1964. I think it is a testament to how much Connery shaped the on-screen Bond character in his own image, that it had been Fleming's early conception of the character, that he should be someone on screen like David Niven or Hoagy Carmichael, of all people, which now seems slightly ridiculous. When most people think of James Bond, they think of either the current actor incarnating the role, but mostly they think of Sean Connery, I think it's fair to say. I think all Bond actor portrayals, whether Connery's own or that of Roger Moore, Daniel Craig, and all the others, exist on a sliding scale, going from roguish sophistication to thuggish tough guy. The two sides of James Bond's nature, really. And no Bond actor would ever handle that dichotomy better than Sean Connery himself. A jungle cat in evening wear, someone once said of him in those early performances as Bond. In that dichotomy, he was also both better in being more sophisticated and worse in being more cold-blooded than movie audiences had been used to with their action heroes before Bond. There was nothing like that movie character before him. He seemed so modern when he hit the screens in 1962, and it captured the imagination of almost everyone in the world. He just appeared so effortlessly cool in every situation and that's a necessary character trait that Connery was able to convey better than any other Bond actor after him. Connery had it for moment one, as if fully formed in the very introduction of his character in the very first Bond film, still one of the most iconic moments in movie history where he is seated at the chemin deferred table of an upscale casino, seen first from the side and then the back. After he wins a couple of hands against a glamorous young woman, she asks for more chips from the changeur in order to gamble. We then hear Connery speak in the film for the first time. I admire your courage, miss, uh, he tells her as the camera shows his hands, removing a cigarette from a slender case. She introduces herself as Trench, Sylvia Trench, and tells him that she admires his luck and then asks his name. His reply remains a catchphrase decades later. Bond, he says, his face finally revealed as he lights a cigarette. James Bond. Three cool monosyllables in icily disdainful style. Last name first, a little curtly, perhaps, as befits a former naval commander. And then, as if in afterthought, the first name, followed by the surname again. That kind of introduction, if never quite so memorable again, would be repeated with variations in most of the subsequent films. Always a kind of challenge or seduction, and invariably addressed to either an enemy or a beautiful woman. Sometimes one of the same, of course. But from that moment onwards, and though he would frequently bristle at the suggestion, Sean Connery was James Bond. And that's something that people still feel today. Even as recently as this summer, the actor was voted the best James Bond in a poll in the UK in which more than 14,000 people voted, with Connery claiming a staggering 56% of the vote. You know, it really wouldn't be much of an exaggeration to credit him with the continuing success of the series almost 60 years later. And certainly without him, we might never have had more than that one film. Even the late Roger Moore, one of Connery's successors as Bond, who had been friends with Connery for several decades, had always maintained that Sean was the best ever James Bond. Now, I hope I'm not overdoing it, but in the early 1960s, Sean Connery's James Bond was about as dangerous and sexy as it got on screen. That is until directors like Alfred Hitchcock and Sidney Lumet came along and saw how Connery's on-screen menace could be taken to the next level. And another thing, the humor, mostly through wisecracks, pithy one-liners, and deadpan comedy, of a kind, was something that would always be a part of the Bond series, and Connery has often been credited with introducing that element, as it is not really present in the books upon which they are based. And certainly it was not always in those early scripts either. A lot of it was Connery improvising on set. He had a pressing engagement. I think he got the point. Shocking. Positively shocking. He blew a fuse. He's playing his golden harp. She had her kicks. Now, without context, those lines might not sound like much, but coming from the lips of Sean Connery, they helped define the James Bond persona and made the dry quip a mainstay of both Bond films themselves and the wider action genre cinema that they helped invent. United artists knew from the start that they had something hot on their hands, and couldn't wait to make more Bond movies, with ever more elaborate stunts and gadgets, along with more exotic locales. Connery's stature grew as well, with the ever more popular sequels for Musher with Love, Goldfinger, and Thunderball, which arrived over the next four years and became a worldwide phenomenon. Now, while he was paid only $30,000 for Dr. No, he received $400,000 two years later for Alfred Hitchcock's Marnie and was soon getting three quarters of a million dollars a film. It doesn't sound like much today, but it was immense back then. You know, even as the 007 films made him a millionaire and a movie star of the highest rank at this time, Connery tried often to separate his own personality from that of Bond. I'm obviously not James Bond, he once said. And Bond is obviously not a human being. Fleming invented him after the war, when people were hungry for luxury, gourmet touches, exotic settings. Those were the things the English loved to read about following the privations of the war. While his dramatically increased star status had allowed him to make films outside the series, notably, the psychological thriller Marnie for Alfred Hitchcock, and The Hill, a military prison drama directed by Sidney Lumet, Connery's increasing disenchantment with playing 007 saw him drop out of the series after being chased into a washroom by innumerable members of the press while filming the 1967 Bond film You Only Live Twice in Japan. He had also taken issue with the advertising campaign for that film, which insisted that Sean Connery is James Bond, with the word is underlined and in bold on the poster. Now with no desire to live up to that building, he skipped on Her Majesty's Secret Service in 1969, in which he was replaced by George Lazenby. However, the Australian actor's tenure lasted only for that single film and Connery was lured back with an enormous fee for Diamonds Are Forever in 1971. The real Sean Connery, well, he had a troubled first marriage, and a history of comments that justified domestic abuse. In 1962, he married the Australian Diane Cilento, an actress best known for her role as Molly in Tom Jones. They had a son, Jason, Connery's only child, who also became an actor. But the marriage to Cilento proved tempestuous, and it ended in 1974. Its impact lasted long afterwards, however. Chilento, who died in 2011, would allege that he had physically abused her. And Connery, well, unfortunately, he defended his behavior in interviews. As early as 1965, he had told Playboy magazine, and I quote here, that he did not find anything particularly wrong about hitting a woman, although I don't recommend doing it, he said, in the same way that you would hit a man. An open-handed slap is justified if all other alternatives fail, and there has been plenty of warning, quote-unquote. The words of Sean Connery in 1965. Now, when Barbara Walters brought up those remarks in a 1987 interview, he said his opinion hadn't changed because, and I quote again, unfortunately, sometimes women just won't leave things alone, quote-unquote. Now, of course, Connery was widely and certainly justifiably criticized for that, and would attempt to backtrack upon such comments in the years afterwards, claiming that they were taken out of context. But it's it's really hard to read them as anything other than they are. Uh, and he must have known this in his later years, because he would shy away from future interviews and events if he thought that he might be asked about this. And I don't think he ever apologized either for his comments or for his behavior. And yet he still received numerous honors, including being chosen as commander, the same rank as Bond, of France's order of arts and literature. He also became a Kennedy Center honoree in 1999, and in 2005, he was chosen for a Lifetime Achievement Award by the American Film Institute. In the year 2000, Queen Elizabeth II proclaimed him a British knight at Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh, the location at his request. And so he became Sir Sean Connery wearing full Scottish dress at the investiture, including the green and black plaid kilt of his mother's MacLeod clan. He called it one of the proudest days of my life. Now, I don't wish to make too much of this, but it would be interesting to know uh, if he would have received all of these awards and honors in our own day, in our You know, in the um, era of the Me Too movement, it's possible, but I think it unlikely. When Sean Connery started earning big money in the 1960s, he established his base at a villa in Marbella on the Spanish coast, before ultimately relocating to his own island in the Caribbean. He described the former as, My sanitarium, where I recover from the madness of the film world, quote-unquote. But by the time that Diamonds Are Forever came out in 1971, Connery's public image, despite his misgivings, had merged almost entirely with that of James Bond. And as one observer has commented, he accepted this burden with the (laughs) same dangerously simmering resentment and controlled anger that had made him such a glorious success as Bond in the first place. He had long grown weary of playing 007, in fear he wasn't being taken seriously as an actor, despite his notable dramatic performances in Hitchcock's Marnie and Lamette's The Hill. I'd been an actor since I was 25, but the image the press put out was that I just fell into this tuxedo and started mixing vodka martinis, he once complained. And he was never shy in these years in expressing a love-hate relationship with the Bond character, despite the fame, money, and clout that it had brought him. So when he did walk away, at age 41, Hollywood insiders predicted that Connery would soon be washed up. I mean, who would hire a balding, typecast, middle-aged actor with a funny accent, right? But Connery, he fooled them all, playing a wide range of characters and proving equally adept at comedy, adventure, and drama. and age, it seemingly only heightened the appeal of his dark stare and rugged brogue. And in fact, he set a celebrity record of sorts when at age 59, he was named People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. Gosh, I'm, I'm 58 and I, I can barely <laughs> imagine... Um, Uh, such a tribute in however reduced and modest a context. As early as 1964, the same year that Connery made Goldfinger, his appearance in Hitchcock's psychological thriller, Marnie, suggested that he might have a future outside of Bond. Even while that film, Marnie had clearly focused on the dark side of Connery, and this is very interesting, um, you know, because that that violent aspect that um I spoke about in his real life and which certainly he glamorized in his James Bond movies, Hitchcock must have seen something of that and used it to very interesting effect in his film, Marnie. And so uh in that movie, you know, and, and without the justifications of selfless missions for Queen and Country, um It looks a lot more unsettling in the Hitchcock film. His character in that film, the wealthy publisher Mark Rutland, is arrogant, possessive, and not above raping his wife on their wedding night. And, in fact, he's blackmailed her into marrying him. It's very dark stuff, and it's really the obverse of the same... um, James Bond persona, you know, on the the dark and the light. And that's something that Connery himself would grapple with in future films as well. Now, Marnie was not a hit, but critics and scholars have reassessed it in recent decades as certainly among Hitchcock's most interesting movies. The other really interesting film that Connery did from his Bond years is Sidney Lamette's brutal military prison for The Hill, made in 1965, the year of James Bond mania with the release of Thunderball, in which he plays a soldier sent to a military prison camp in the Libyan desert and forced with others to endure sadistic punishments such as climbing a man-made hill, in full equipment, while in the burning sun, it's a searing, uncompromising movie. And Connery's toughness eventually gives way to a tragic vulnerability. So I'm sure the man was no, without, not without self-awareness, though the role did showcase the, you know, the the tough side of the young Connery that, in many ways, his portrayals as James Bond had smoothed away somewhat and made <laughs> certainly quite glamorous. And although it, it too was not a hit, Sidney Lumet saw that Connery could do more than James Bond. And for that, the actor was eternally grateful. They would go on to do four additional films together. In 2007, movie critic Glenn Kenney interviewed the great director, Sidney Lumet, and he had this to say about Connery. I'm quoting here. "'Connery forms very few Bonds, "'despite having been James Bond,' I think one of the reasons we immediately got close was the first thing he felt for me was enormous respect for him as an actor. When you look at the Bond characterization, everybody says, oh, well, he's just being charming. That's nothing. Hey, that's like saying Cary Grant was just being charming. But there is great acting skill in playing that kind of character. What he's doing stylistically is playing high comedy, and that is extremely difficult to do. Which is why there are so few of those actors, so few Cary Grant's and Sean Connery's. But it's acting, don't kid yourself. And right away, on the hill, the very fact that I cast him in it meant something. And he was so thrilled to be taken that seriously for that kind of drama. And when he got to produce a picture of his own, The Offense, a story he picked out as a result of his contract for Diamonds Are Forever, I was thrilled to be asked by him to direct. Quote, unquote. Now, despite the critical success of The Hill, and remember, Marnie itself took years to be truly appreciated as a great film, Connery's initial efforts to break out of the Bond mold proved mostly fruitless. In addition to these, movies like The Comedy of Fine Madness, in which he plays a frazzled poet, and also *Shalako*, a Western of all things, in addition to the Molly Maguires, they were, they were all well-intentioned attempts from this period that did nothing to shake Connery as Bond from the public consciousness. When Connery was coaxed back into the role of Bond for 1971's Diamonds Are Forever, he looked old, much older than his 41 years, and seemed tired and uninterested, despite the large paycheck. So with that, he left Bond behind again, though money would tempt him back one last time for 1983's unofficial Bond entry Never say never again. Nevertheless, the 1970s were mostly a mixed bag for him. He and Lamette made something a little more mm, souffle-like than their first film together, when at around the same time as Diamonds Are Forever, they made the heist picture, the Anderson tapes, with Connery as a seductive but hardly suave master thief who, among other things, enlists a very young Christopher Walken into his somewhat hapless gang. He had another brilliant, brutal role in Sidney Lumet's The Offense, which he spoke about in that quote that I, um, that I read from 1973, in which Connery plays a cop who has, um, during interrogation, murdered a suspected child molester, and whose dark, deep-seated motivations are only gradually disclosed in flashback which forced the Connery character to confront his own blind brutality. Almost here as if his performance was a comment, just as in Hitchcock, a comment on the dark side of his masculinity and the masculinity that he had projected so glamorously and so valuably in the James Bond movies. Perhaps that's another reason why he grew tired of them. He didn't wish to glamorize that kind of masculinity again. So even if he didn't apologize for his missteps in his private life, perhaps in a way some of these films are that apology. Now, of course, I don't wish to minimize his offense But there it is. Professionally speaking, uh, and strictly in terms of movie making, he took a major misstep with John Borman's extremely strange science fiction film, Zardoz, after which his career seemed to be foundering. Uh, If nothing else, he can certainly credit Connery with wanting to stretch himself very much as an actor with his choice of this, um, movie, uh, Zardoz by the director, John Mormon. Um, I don't know if you can visualize any images from the film. Perhaps you can look them up. Uh, if you can't, there's a famous image of Connery in a bizarre red posing pouch, thigh length boots and little else. That is something that has to be Frank tested the faith of Connery fans for decades. <laughs> Uh, It's an interesting film, but mm, not a successful one, either commercially or artistically. Nevertheless, he quickly rebounded uh, when Sidney Lumet uh, made him part of his all-star ensemble cast for 1974's Agatha Christie adaptation, uh, Murder on the Orient Express, Um, a much safer choice than some of the films that he had most recently uh, been making. And then he made two uh, really great films, two of the best from his non-Bond period. John Huston's The Man Who Would Be King from 1975, uh, which is a classic epic in the David Lean style. Based on the Rudyard Kipling novella, Connery and his uh, his friend Michael Caine here play lovable British ex-military con men who, trying their luck in the mythical land of Kafiristan, look to become staggeringly wealthy when the Credulous natives mistake them for gods. In the following year, 1976, in Richard Lester's Robin and Marion, uh, Connery quite poignantly plays the aging Robin Hood. And the, the entire film has this quiet, gentle tone that we're really not used to in, um, in any of his earlier films. Clearly, in Robin and Marion, his Robin Hood is is not the man that he used to be. And uh, he's playing opposite Audrey Hepburn, by the way, as Marion. And very interestingly, and he's, he's, he's definitely owning up to his advancing years uh, in this film. Uh, most obviously in terms of the visual, by dispensing entirely with the hairpiece. The hairpiece really for the first time in his career, I think, which he had worn from the earliest days as Bond. That's something many people don't know. Um, But unfortunately, Robin and Marion, it was not a popular success, though critics did embrace it. And the film certainly helped establish Connery as, at least in their eyes, a versatile and serious screen actor. But there there were limits, definitely, to how far Connery would go comfortably in playing against type. He and Richard Lester had a falling out out during the making of 1979's Cuba, much because of the director's attempt to undercut the virility associated with the Connery persona, something he himself had been doing a lot to do, you know. Um, But nevertheless, they did not see eye to eye on this film, Cuba, and the resulting film was neither a commercial or critical success the 1980s um really saw him in a kind of various autumnal mood a, a self-reflective one uh and a frequently humorously self-deprecating uh one as well uh his his simmering smoldering persona had largely aged quite well into a quieter, softer, if no less potent maturity. And that semi-baldness, which he had once feared, was now augmented by a salt and pepper beard that, you know, looked on him like authentic masculinity. And he used it to superb effect in a small part, playing Agamemnon in Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits from 1981. You know, Connery kept his promise to himself not to play James Bond again until 1983, when he was lured back for Never Say Never Again, an independently produced remake of Thunderball, which had been his most popular James Bond film. He even helped produce it himself. Based on one of the few Fleming Bond stories that hadn't been nailed down by producers Broccoli and Saltzman, Connery took the role, in part despite Broccoli. Uh, Salzman by this time had sold his interest to, in the series to United Artists, but uh, Broccoli he had um, he had had always felt a certain grievance towards believing that he um, had never been paid enough in his first go round as Bond in the nineteen sixties, and so he he held a long standing grudge against the producers uh, because of that, fairly or or not. Anyway, the result was Never Say Never Again, a title suggested, and a very self-aware title if there ever was one, um, but a title suggested by his second wife, the uh, French-Moroccan painter Michelin Roquebrun, whom he married in 1975 and to whom he was still married when he died last Saturday, almost uh, 40 years later. In 1986, Connery played a compassionate, intellectual, crime solving monk slash detective in the very popular Umberto Eco adaptation, The Name of the Rose, for which he even received a BAFTA Best Actor award. Uh, the, the first notable such accomplishment, it must be said, but not the last. The following year, he also won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in Brian De Palma's The Untouchables by playing the courageous straight arrow cop, Jimmy Malone, who helps Kevin Costner's Elliot Ness take on Al Capone, played by Robert De Niro. By then, Connery, I think, had made his peace with James Bond. And when he arrived on stage at the Oscar ceremony, he declared, and I quote here, the name's Connery, Sean Connery, end quote. (laughs) It was almost like an acknowledgement that he could only free himself of his public identification with James Bond if he found a way to coexist with it. You know, Connery's superb comic timing and often concealed light touch work really on display playing the feisty Professor Henry Jones, the disapproving dad of Indiana Jones in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade from 1989. You know, when the producers Steven Spielberg and George Lucas thought of who they might get to play Indy's dad, they instantly hit upon James Bond, ergo Sean Connery. Though funnily enough, Connery was only 12 years older than Harrison Ford himself. Nevertheless, it was still... Quite an inspired pairing, and the film grossed almost half a billion dollars worldwide. By this time, Connery's legendary status, both oddly at one with and apart from Bond, was something that he seemingly carried around with a plum. A year later, uh, in 1990, he was the renegade Soviet submarine commander in the adventure thriller The Hunt for Red October, which was also a huge hit. Um, he he now just seemed to have a certain gravitas necessary to carry off such parts, with you know the public bringing to anything that he might do memories of Connery in any number of mostly alpha male roles. So with all of his performances in this period, they're 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 all informed by you know almost thirty years of previous filmmaking roles. And that was certainly true in 1991 when he was almost equally memorable in a much smaller uh, part, in fact an uncredited one, as King Richard to Kevin Costner's Robin Hood in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I mean, when you want a king, you go to Sean Connery, right? That would have been the thinking at this period in his career in the 1990s. Now, one setback, uh, one real-life setback was about with with um, throat cancer, in the early 90s. But Connery rebounded with a burst of activity. He starred with Nicolas Cage in the 1996 action film The Rock, playing a character that drew more than a little on his history as James Bond. But by now, his legacy as one of the greats had definitely benefited from his having gone against the Bond grain as often as he had. So well thought of was he still, that for the 1999 heist caper, Entrapment, and nearing the age of 70, Connery was considered, amazingly, at least in some quarters, to be still an entirely plausible action lead and romantic partner for the 30-year-old Catherine Zeta Jones. Age seemed only to intensify his sex appeal and his virility, but of course, it couldn't last. In 2000, he he provided a charming performance in a very different role, certainly one that didn't call upon that kind of virility and sex appeal, and received positive reviews for Finding Forrester, playing a reclusive writer who bonds with a young black basketball player who's an aspiring writer himself. It's was a very kind of late... Career departure for an actor, Sean Connery, who really had, to be fair, never been afraid of such a challenge. And then Connery Connery retired from the movies after disputes with the director of his final outing, The Forgettable, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, in 2003. I get fed up dealing with idiots he said. And so he retired from the movies, but also mostly from public life in general, and spent much of his time at his home in the Bahamas on his own island, where he played golf almost every morning, often with his wife. But he only announced in 2007 that he had retired for good, when he turned down the chance to appear in another Indiana Jones movie. You know, I thought long and hard about it, and if anything could have pulled me out of retirement, It would have been an Indiana Jones film, he said. But in the end, retirement is just too damn fun. Okay, that's it, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this look back at the life and career of Sean Connery. You've been listening to me, Stephen Tomlinson, Code St. Luke Librarian. Please join me next week for more movie talk. Uh, And remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at saintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page, or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now.
0: Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for listening today. My name is Daryl Levine. We launched this podcast and uh, telephone broadcasting service at the end of March 2020. Of course, we had uh, closed our doors at that point. Uh, People could not come anymore to the library to uh, listen to interesting talks and so on. And this was a way of getting the content to you. Uh, One of the things that we did was uh, set up a telephone number that people could call into every day at 2 p.m. so they could listen to this if they either didn't have a computer or maybe they weren't comfortable using a computer. Uh, And of course, we also later distributed this show through the regular podcast channels that people uh, who listen to podcasts are familiar with. And maybe that's how you're listening to us today. So thanks for listening. Be well, stay safe, and we'll see you soon.